This is Heart of the Matter 2.0. We're out of Salt Lake City. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Tonight's uh, program is called Modern Miracles Through Christ. Let's kick it off with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, petition you and seek you in spirit and truth. Pray that you'll open up our eyes to the things that are important for us to hear. And uh, pray that those who are seeking to break free from any bondage that holds them bound, that they will be able to find some support here through Heart of the Matter. We're grateful for those who work so hard to keep the ministry going and volunteer and do the show. And we just pray you'll bless them and bless our viewers, whether in-house or at home or watching the archives. In Jesus' name, amen. We uh, have an annual get-together uh, of uh, people who are involved in the ministry, partners and friends and family. And uh, Derek and Danita set up a fantastic uh, event at a hockey game, and we have some highlights. Check it out. together. It was a great time. Thank everybody who was involved. Uh, hey, this Friday, 12 noon meeting at the City Building in downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, join our recent guest, Sam Young, and his march to protect LDS children from abusive behind-the-door interviews 
uh, that are uh, held by the LDS church leadership. You don't need to be LDS or former LDS to join, but uh, we're going to put some pressure on them. I guess they made some decision today that, yes, we would allow parents to um, go with their children into these private interviews. And uh, I uh, had a conversation with Sam. He said, it's just a, it's just a, it's a terrible thing. It's not, it hasn't done anything. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll uh, see if the marching, I've never marched for any cause in my life, but I see the damage done in this area of interest. And so we want to help Sam Young. I think there's going to be over a thousand. There will be Subway sandwiches uh, served as well, again, uh, by Derek and Danita. And uh, that's Friday, 12 p.m. Uh, do us a favor. If you have, are inclined, please share this program and the website and the Facebook and everything else with your friends who might benefit from it. Uh, as you share this, they share it, and the program grows, and it helps. And it would really help us become more widely known. Perhaps somebody would benefit by the content that we provide. Okay, <clears throat> words are very powerful. They can open up minds, and they can soften hearts. They can hurt. They can close doors. They change over time, words. And uh, they can become very negative. From 1300 to 1600, the word nice, the word nice meant someone who's ignorant. Did you know that? That if you said that someone was nice, it meant that they are dumb or ignorant. In the 1500s, it started to mean that you are meticulous and you are sharp-witted. And then in the 1800s, nice turned into what it means today, someone who is kind or uh, amiable. Um, words can move from meaning something really evil to meaning something that is benign or even good. Or they can move from being benign and, uh, and have no connotation, and then they can move to meaning something bad. For instance, the word gay, it used to mean something completely different. In fact, you read literature not far back, and they would say, oh, the gay 20s, he's so gay, she's so gay, the party was gay. Uh, and it means something completely different today. So after talking with my friend Corey last week on the telephone, and then also my daughter Mallory, I learned something really important that I've missed in the conversations that we've been having of late. The word sin today, that word has been so misused by groups and people and religious folks over the centuries, you know, you are a sinner, repent you sinner, you're going to go to hell you sinner, and that's a sin by people calling people out. It has such a heavy connotation that what it does is when you introduce it, I never thought of this till uh, Corey and then Mallory kind of affirmed this, that it just automatically puts blinders on, uh, those aren't blinders, those are muffs, earmuffs on people, blinders on the eyes, and they shut down when you say something is uh, sin. And the discussion on homosexuality has opened us up to some interesting conversations. And I realize that there's always going to be varying views on this thing, but the recent conversation on sin, long story short, has let me see the error of my ways in saying homosexuality is a sin. Not because I've changed my view on what 
it is relative to God's perfect uh, plan. But in, when you say it's a sin, it is such an inflammatory word. How stupid could I be when it came to that? Perhaps we could say that someone's actions or behaviors are fallen. We started off in the Garden of Eden with God's perfect state, and then we fell. And so God had his perfect system there, but we fell into certain traits or behaviors or characteristics that aren't up. Maybe we could call it lesser behavior rather than a higher behavior. A lesser behavior being off the mark of what God would want for people, but nevertheless sent his son to pay for lesser egregious or, or, or almost higher behaviors. God's taking care of it. If, if I, so I'm trying to think maybe we should change our way of talking about this. Something to consider that due to the fall of man, all of us are subject to fallen or lesser behaviors and lifestyle choices while we abide here on earth. The second thing to think about uh, in the face of our lesser behaviors, I think it's really important for our audience to know that even though I teach fulfillment, that means I believe when you read the Bible, everything in it has been completed. I think it is a history, a spiritual history book that is the Word of God, and it tells us a story about how God worked salvation into this world through the Jews. And I think that the prophecies and all the stuff in it are fulfilled. In fact, there's nothing in the book that allows us to take it and assign it to ourselves today. We just do, thinking that it still applies uh, ignorantly, so to speak. But while I am a fulfillment person, I am convinced personally, in fact, I teach this way at campus, that the New Testament message is that when anyone, anybody on earth, saved or not, Christian or not, sows to the things of the Spirit, meaning faith and love, they will reap to the things of the Spirit. They'll harvest in the things of the Spirit here and after this life. And when anyone sows to the flesh, that means plants to the flesh, they will reap or harvest in the flesh. Now, because we know we won't be flesh hereafter, you can't, you can't have a harvest afterwards. So if you've, if you've been, let's just say, Mick Jagger, and you've spent your whole life sowing to the flesh. Flesh, flesh, flesh. I don't know that Mick Jagger's done that, but I'm just assuming he has. When he dies, he's going to be spirit, and there'll be nothing to reap because he only planted and sowed to the flesh. Those who choose here to sow to the spirit when they die will have the spiritual harvest of good things for themselves in that realm. I teach that and believe that completely through Scripture. So, let me give you an example from my own life. Something I'm going to do a lot of tonight because I think it's important. Wednesday is my day off, tomorrow, so to speak. I, I still work, but it's a day I let myself go uh, in eating. It's I let myself go and just sitting back at night and watching uh, Netflix. And sometimes I drink alcohol. Well, last Wednesday night, I got plastered. Plastered. 
I took a water bottle, like the regular water bottle like this, and I filled it three quarters of tequila, and I went to dinner with my wife, and I poured it in my Diet Coke, and I, I drank that much tequila in one sitting. I, I, I drink maybe five times, you know, ten times maybe a year, but I drank that much. So I was not buzzed. I wasn't a little tipsy. I was schnitt-faced, okay? Now, there was an option to me before I decided to get drunk with alcohol. That option is presented in the New Testament. It says, well, I'll just read it to you. It's Ephesians 5.17. It says, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be drunk with the Spirit. And so what Paul says there is, listen, we have a choice. If you want to sow to your flesh, like I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to drink that night because I was under some pressures and people were bothering me and I needed to escape. I didn't take getting drunk with the Spirit as my option. I didn't take going to God and praying and asking Him to help me in my flesh and to give me some release and spiritual comfort to help me overcome my flesh. I said, I've been doing a lot of that. I need to have a real stiff drink. And I had about seven of them in one shot, right? Now, I know the scripture that Paul gives. I knew it before I drank the alcohol. I know my action was not the better way. It wasn't the highest way. It was a lesser way. Is drinking allowed in scripture? It is. You can drink. But I took it to a lesser extent. Not in a reasonable extent like, like scripture says. I took it to a lesser extent. To comfort me in my flesh rather than my spirit. The scripture is clear that drunkenness is a fallen or lesser activity for human beings today. I can justify that it's good. I can say it works. It helped me relax because it did. Uh, I can say God doesn't care about it. I can say all kinds of things. But there is a less fallen response I could have taken uh, in this world. And I know it. I teach it, so I understand it. Um, but I cho chose to ignore that, perhaps because I was weak. Perhaps my flesh was stronger that time and my spirit was, was weaker. I, I have to admit it. Now, does God love me less? Um, am I banished from his presence because of this action? Never, ever. I wasn't saved by Christ because I abstain from alcohol. I was saved by Christ because of faith in him. Because I got drunk didn't say I don't believe in Jesus. It just said I, my, I let my flesh reign more than perhaps it should have. But here's the thing. If I justify the actions and say they are the highest response I could have had, if I said, this is, this is fine, I am fine doing this every night. It's the way God wants me to live. I was made this way. 
and he wants me to drink this much tequila every night to inebriate myself. It's the highest way to approach him. I'm in trouble. I'm missing out on the opportunity for God to work with me in turning my views to him. He doesn't work with me with the thumb pressing on me or an iron fist. It's a gentle leading. Sean, do you really need to drink this much to relax? Oh, probably not, Lord. What do you mean, probably not? Okay, I don't. Right, you don't. And you will probably again and whatever, but, you know, just consider it, you know. That's how he works with you. He's not saying sinner, lesser behavior, fallen. He's just saying... When I say I know it's not the, the best way to approach something, that's how he engages with us. So unlike Reformed believers, I am committed to the belief from Scripture that God allows each and every one of us to create our eternal futures. I believe that from Scripture. We will reap what we sow. All right? That being the case, I'm moved to teach this as a reality both at campus and here on the show. I teach it as a reality. And while all are his, I think only some are his sons and daughters, and sons and daughters will always say, Lord, I know there's a better way to do things. Help me get through this failure in my flesh. Those who don't care and have no desire to seek him or follow that, and they'll live the lesser ways, he loves them. They will be reconciled to him. Um, they are redeemed in the blood that Christ universally gave. But the tenor of scripture is clear through and through. If you want to relate with God in the most intimate ways, you want to seek to live higher, at least more often than lower. And you aim to live according to those ways that he establishes in Scripture. In the face of this objective and targeted audience that I seek to reach, I seek to reach truth seekers who want that higher road. It's not that they're perfect, obviously. It's not that anyone's perfect. I don't know if I'm on it. But I hope to reach people who want to have that heightened relationship with God directly uh, in their spirit. Um, there's a song, and I don't ever, I rarely do this, but there's a song by a group called Mumford and Sons, and it's called The Cave. And it speaks, it gives voice to our flesh and the battle that goes on. And it's poetic, and this is what it says. It's empty in the valley of your heart. The sun, it rises slowly as you walk. Away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind. The harvest left no food for you to eat. You cannibal, you meat eater, you see. But I have seen the same. I know the shame in your defeat. But I will hold on hope. And I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck. And I'll find strength in pain. And I will change my ways. I know, I'll know my name as it's called again. 
because I have other things to fill my time. You take what is yours and I'll take mine. Now let me at the truth which will refresh my broken mind. So tie me to a post and block my ears. I can see the widows and orphans through my tears. I know my call despite my faults and despite my growing fears. But I will hold on hope and I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck. And I'll find strength in pain and I will change my ways. I know my name when it's called again. So come out of the cave walking on your hands and see the world hanging upside down. You can understand dependence when you know the maker's land. So make your sirens call and sing all you want. I will not hear what you have to say because I need freedom now and I need to know how to live my life as it's meant to be. The words from the cave speak to the battle that we have between the flesh and the lower road it always wants to take us on. And the spirit that says, you have a name, you have a state with God. He's calling you to it. And it's such a beautiful way to put it. For what it's worth. Got a very touching email from a viewer that said, Dear Sean, I saw your recent broadcast concerning homosexuality and your response to two different emails that you received on the subject of homosexuality being a sin. I am a Christian mom with two children and both are gay. To say I have struggled over this subject for years would be a big understatement. I knew my son, his name is also Sean, he's 23 years old, was probably gay from the very early age and he was one of those sensitive little boys who preferred playing with girls, hated sports and competition, and had a very sweet heart. At around the age of four, he started showing signs of anxiety and OCD-type behavior. At age six, the tics started, and he was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. It went from mild to severe, and he wasn't able to attend school most of his life and was homeschooled. We know other people who have the same type of neurological issues as Sean, and they seem to fit the pattern and for the most part are gay. This led me to realize that it is possible to be born that way, something I completely agree with. It is an issue in the brain for most, in my opinion. As puberty approached, it was obvious that he was going to have feminine characteristics and his voice didn't deepen much. He began to have breast development, of which he was very ashamed. I took him to specialists and didn't get any real answers or solutions. So we seem to be living in a time in which we see more and more neurological issues such as Tourette's, autism, and more homosexuality. So how would Jesus want us to respond in this culture we are in? I know we are to love, of course. How do we best love those in situations such as Sean's? I have had many sleepless nights, cried buckets over the years, and struggled to help my son. He is usually in a state of depression, has little interest in life, and is constantly exhausted from the anxiety of the Tourette's and feeling, feelings of worthlessness and confusion. My 17-year-old daughter came out to me a few months ago, and I can't help but think that there's a genetic issue going on. She is somewhat masculine in appearance, but is less anxious about her feelings. I never really ask God why about anything except this. 
both of my kids, both struggling with guilt and shame after being raised in what we would consider a very normal Christian home. They both have what I believe to have been born-again experiences and have been baptized. My husband and I have been through all the emotions, pain, and questioning that comes with this, and we are still longing for answers, but we uh, love and accept our children always. We want our kids to love God and others, which I believe they do, but like all parents, we want them to be loved and have a family someday. Sometimes it really feels like torture. The reason I'm writing this email to you is because I've been watching HOTM for years, and I know that you are someone who doesn't disbelieve what other people say. You search things out for yourself. The question she wants to know as she goes on and talks about everything is how do you manage these children? How do you respond and talk to them? And I just truncated that message uh, to, for brevity. And she signs it, Julie. This is what I wrote to her, and this is what I honestly believe. My sister, my heart breaks with yours as I cannot comprehend the angst and suffering that you have endured under this situation with your dear son, Sean. Here's the deal as I see it. Sean and whatever he needs to be and do physiologically is understood by our loving God. In the age of grace, because of Christ, Sean is as much his as anyone else who looks to him in faith, no matter what course of action he decides or is driven to take in his personal life. The message to Sean is one of great news. God so loved Sean as he came into this world that he gave Sean his only begotten son to save him from all the effects and outcomes of his life, period. And it is Sean's faith in his son that justifies him before the living God. Nothing more. Including fixing himself the way the world of Christianity believes Sean should be fixed. The, this message properly taught and delivered ought to release Sean from the guilt and shame that comes from our fallen natures. We are not saved because we overcome our fallen natures. We are saved through faith. The follow-up to this wonderful message is one of humility if it's properly understood, not pride. This is the point I'm trying to make on the show. Yes, Sean, like the rest of us, can rejoice in the liberation to be, without reservation, who he is before the Lord. But this liberty does not manifest in rejoicing over his natural state. It manifests in rejoicing in the Lord who saved him and what he's done for Sean in his natural state. Unfortunately, we have taken the results of the fall, which is the corruption all of us have in our flesh, and try to justify it before the world by taking pride in our state rather than contrition before God for our natural fallen tendencies. These attitudes miss the point in my estimation, and whether it's the fallen traits of aberrant heterosexuality, violence, anger, lust, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, or things simply lying and gossiping, if they lead to boasting in the sin nature, there I use that word, God's ability to bring us closer to him is diminished. It's so simple. I hope this helps. 
And may God bless you, my sister. Bless your heart. Bless your family. Bless everything you stand in need of, especially with the knowledge that he has taken care of every pain, every failure, every sin, and every other thing into account through the shed blood of his son. All right, a couple things which I want to explain before I go to the board, and uh, they're going to help you understand some um, things about our final message tonight before we wrap it up. First of all, we have lost a few people in the ministry over the years because I don't really appreciate uh, miracles as they're described in the Christian church, uh, meaning I don't like the replication of or the pretended replication of biblical miracles here in the, in the body. Uh, I do believe God is a God of miracles, but I tend to believe those miracles are sort of either without man at all involved, meaning you don't need faith healers. God will heal. There's the miracle. You don't need the slap head up guys. Or I believe that man is completely involved, and it's a miracle when they do things like restore people's sight through modern medicine. So that's how I see it. I see it as a miracle that a doctor can restore someone's sight because of the knowledge God has given them. And I see when someone is healed miraculously from some disease that it's a miracle too. I just don't see the need for faith healers. I don't see the need for people trying to replicate what happened in the New Testament and healing the blind and getting the crippled to walk and, and the lame to walk and all that stuff. In other words, I'm suspect of Christian faith healers slapping foreheads and preying on people who have arthritis and getting them to walk across the stage. That being said, I know, I know that God is a God of grand miracles. I know this pers personally, which I'm going to describe to you in a second. The second thing I want to talk about is in harmony with a story that comes in John 9. Uh, there's a man born blind. He was healed by Jesus, and he was subsequently taken before the religious rulers of his day, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, and they peppered him with questions, and they were getting repetitive in their questions. The man who was born blind started answering nicely, but over time he started to get bold because these guys were trying to make Jesus out to be something bad. Jesus, a bad guy, healed him and gave him his sight. At one point... The man was asked if Jesus was a sinner, and he responds in verse 25, whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. That's what he said. We have had a lot of discussions here on Heart of the Matter about the nature of Jesus. Some of them have been heated and accusatory even to the point where fellowship has been excluded and you're not going to shake hands as a brother and things like that uh, because of questions I have about the makeup of God, and etc. But what I can say without question, like the blind man, is that where I was once considered unhealable, unhealable by the modern sages of my day, I have been healed. This healing was, it continues to be a miracle in my life and in the life of those who know me.
Um, last year we did a show called The Narcissistic Supply. And I spoke to this situation because I said in that show that I am a, a narcissist. And that's how I came into the world and that is a trait that is present in my flesh. Narcissism. And it's probably part of the McCraney family tree. The way I look at my brothers and sisters, I'm sure it's there. So the current take on true narcissism is they cannot be cured. A real narcissist can't be cured. Recently, I was introduced to a long-term study by a doctor in Canada by the name of Dr. Robert Hare. And the study is on psychopaths, or what they call psychopathy. And as a world leader in this field, Dr. Hare took his lifelong studies and he simmered them down to 20 questions. 20 questions, and he said, the person needs to rate themselves if they have no relation at all to the question or to what is presented, it's a zero. If they have some relation to the, the topic, they get a one. And if they have a lot of relationship to the topic presented, they get a two. And I took the test by myself. And then I sat down with Mary, my wife. She's known me since I was 17 years old. And we read through them and she straight across gave the same answers in numbers, zero, one, or two, that I had given on the 20 questions. Now, there's a tendency to score these things depending on what outcome you want, sort of to slant it, you know, to answer it one way if you want to be a, a psychopath or another way if you don't want to be seen as a psychopath. But I'm going to show you honest to God's scores from my own mind and then what Mary said about me, and we're gonna start with prior to my knowing the Lord. This is while I was a Mormon. This was when I was younger and involved in that faith and not a Christian. So let me go to the board and let's work through this really quickly. Here are Robert Hare's questions, and I'm gonna read them. And then in this box right here, I'm going to give you the score that uh, I gave myself and that my wife concurred with me on her score of me prior to my coming to know the Lord. The person's glib and has superficial charm. That means that they have a tendency to be smooth, engaging, charming, slick, and verbally facile. Psychopathic charm is not at le in the least shy. It's self, not self-conscious. It's not afraid to say anything. A psychopath never gets tongue-tied. They can also be a great listener and stimulate empathy while zeroing in on people's targets and vulnerabilities. They have a great ability to ma manipulate. I get a two prior to knowing the Lord. That's the highest in terms of my narcissistic, psychopathic personality, which cannot be cured. The prisons are full of guys like me. Grandiose self-worth, grossly inflated view of one's worth and abilities, cocky, a braggart. They believe they're superior to other human beings. I got a two from both my wife and myself. Need for stimulation or a proneness to constant boredom. An excessive need for novel, thrilling, exciting stimulation, taking chances, doing things that are risky. Psychopaths often have a low self-discipline in carrying tasks through to completion because they get bored so easily. Definitely a two. 
Pathological lying. I don't need to explain it. A two. I lied like a banshee, whether Mormon or not. As a child, I lied. Conning and manipulative. I don't have to explain it. A two. Lack of guilt or remorse. I only had a one because there were times when I would feel badly for hurting people in certain ways. It, it's not a zero, but it wasn't at the height. Shallow affect, meaning emotional poverty or lack of depth of feeling for other people. Interpersonal coldness in spite of what was going on in front of me. That was a two. A um, callousness or lack of empathy, cold, tactless, a two. Parasitic lifestyle, an intentional, manipulative, selfish, and exploitative financial dependence on others. Low self-discipline and ability to carry through, carry through with one's, uh, one's obligations. I was a stockbroker. I, I was, had a parasitic lifestyle. Combined with all these uh, pathological lying and these other traits, you're able to, to convince people to get into things that they don't need because it benefits you, because it pays out higher. Absolutely a grand two. And then poor behavioral controls. That's a seven. That would have been a seven in my world. But we can only give it a two. We go over to promiscuous, promiscuous, promiscuous sexual behavior. A two. Early behavioral problems. A two. Lack of realistic long-term goals. A two. Impulsivity. A two. Irresponsibility was a one. Failure to accept responsibility was a one. Uh, many short-term relationships, a two. Juvenile delinquency, a two. I think it was a two. Revocation of release, that means that someone gives you a chance to redeem yourself, like a court says, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself. We're going to put you on probation, and you break probation. I gave myself a one in that when I was put on probation. Uh, I, I followed through once, and another time I didn't. And then criminal versatility, it means you enjoy the fact that you know how to do a number of different criminal things. And I think that was a one or a two. I'm not going to add them up, but my score when I did it, because I may have missed one point or two here and there, was a 36 out of 40. From my wife's mouth, from my mouth. Absolutely. There was no chance for me as a human being to function morally in this world. It was as if I was born blind, deaf, and mute. Uh, it was if I was Helen Keller in her day. They couldn't do anything for her. In my psychopathy and narcissistic supply needs, it was an endless thing. So on the show, maybe you've heard me say, I am the worst of the worst saved by the best of the best. And people haven't understood what that means. But this is why I'm, this one reason I'm doing it. So after the Lord. Glib and superficial charm gets a one. Great. Uh, grandiose self-worth is a flat-out zero before the Lord and before others. I have nothing to offer, and I know it.
Uh, need for stimulation and proneness to boredom, absolute zero. I am never bored with the word and with the work and the things I'm doing. Um, pathological lying. I strive very hard to be honest. I don't have a difficulty with honesty anymore. Um, conning and manipulativeness, a zero. I try not to manipulate anybody by the grace of God, by the spirit in him. I don't, want, I don't like to manipulate people. I don't like to control anybody. I want people to do what they want to do versus manipulate them into doing what I want them to do. I can't stand it now. It's the biggest miracle that you can imagine if you look at the earlier scores. What are we on? Number six. And I'm just going to fill them in. A zero. Shallow effect, a zero. Lack of empathy, a zero. Parasitic lifestyle, reverse. I go to great lengths to avoid the tendency to, uh, to uh, live off other people's uh, uh, money and funds. I, I work very hard to just try to keep that clean because I can see what it does to people, but it also gives me a really keen BS indicator because I can see when it's being done, which is why I rail against the manipulation of funds within churches today. Uh, number 10, uh, poor behavior controls. I, a one. If I'm driving and someone ticks me off, I can still lose it. I can still get have a very poor, immediate response to some things. Um, number 11, promiscuous sexual behavior is a um, zero. I had to look. <laughs> earlier behavior problems gives me a two because it can't change what was earlier. Lack of realistic long-term goals, I think I gave a one because I still have flighty ideas. Impulsivity, I'm much less, in fact, I think I gave myself in 14 a zero in that. No, I gave myself a one. I'm still, I guess I'm still some impulsive. Irresponsibility is a zero. Uh, failure to accept responsibility, a zero. Many short-term relationships, a zero. Juvenile delinquency, couldn't change it, so it's there. Revocation of release, a zero. And criminal versatility, I think I still enjoy that about myself, so... I got a one, and I think in the end, what do we have? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I think my score was an eight. I have nine up here, but an eight. From a 36 to an eight, no bull shite. None. In our day and age, it would be crazy for somebody who's involved in teaching the word and pastoring people to admit that they are psychopathic and narcissistic, but it comes with the territory that we're supposed to have with our humility and admitting our faults, that if, even if I tried, I couldn't get on the high road. That's why he, he was able to pull me up and save me from it. Um, usually pastors have either been raised in a good Christian family and one time in college, they tried to smoke pot, and, or they came from being hell's angels and bikers and beer drinkers and partiers and then Satanists, and then they saw the Lord and changed. But you just don't hear psychopathy and narcissism as deeply embedded in a person as it was in me come up. Um, having been a true psychopath with a constant need to narcissistic supply is a terrifying thing and it's a terrifying person to live with. My wife can attest to that. 
uh, it would require the, a miracle in the hands of God to change that person. These things still reside in my flesh. I know that if I gave a few months and I said, I don't care about God, I turn from him, forget his scripture, I'm going to go back to just really feeding my flesh, it would be a terrifying scene because I know what I'm capable of. Um, but I believe God wanted to use this ugly narcissistic personality to break me down and to give me this, this unbelievable healing like the man born blind. To any atheist who tells me there's no evidence of God, any atheist, there's no evidence of God, I'll stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and they'll say, that's just your experience. I'll say, I don't care whose experience it is. I, I don't have to go to talking about science and evolution and all the arguments you guys want to get in. I'll just tell you where I was once blind, I now see. And he's a healer. If you want him to heal you, he will. If you allow him in your life, he'll heal the most devastating aspects of your person. But you have to want to draw to him. You have to desire to have that, and you have to allow that work to take place. Uh, this is my witness to the Christians as well, who say that I'm not a Christian. That they can say, well, you know, you don't believe this doctrine, or you don't practice this uh, theology, or whatever. They can say what they want. Uh, all I can say to them is, I was once blind, and now I see. I don't care what your opinion is. I know that my Lord saved me. I know he's a God of miracles. And I know that he can take the worst person in the flesh and gently over, I mean, it's been 20 years, over a lot of time, a lot of time, work with you and bring you around to a place that is better for you, better for those around you better in your relationship with him. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. If we don't have any calls, we don't have any calls, we're going to cut it short. Take some of this stuff into your heart, consider it, throw out what you don't need or believe, but just know he is a God of miracles but he's doing them in the human heart. See you next week on Heart of the Matter.